You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. our heads. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing of this day and this opportunity that we have in front of us to look at your word and to hear your voice in the pages of your, your Bible, the, your word, scripture. We thank you that it is authoritative. We thank you that it is instructive for us. And we ask now that as we gather together as your people to meet and to look at your word, that you would be our teacher and that you would be our guide, that you would instruct us and encourage us in your word today. May our time here be profitable. May it be honoring and glorifying to you in all that is said and in all that is purposed today in our obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin with a somewhat of a humorous question. I would ask you this. Have you ever eaten something that just refused to be digested? Refused to be digested. And it just seem to sit in your stomach for the longest period of time, and after a while, you get this sneaking suspicion that it's not going to be there for very long. I ask you that because last week I described what it was like for Jonah to be in the belly of the fish, but I, somebody told me afterwards, you didn't bother explaining to us what it was like for the fish to have Jonah in its belly. And you can imagine having a chunk of protein sitting there that just will not digest, and it just turns over and over and over again in your stomach. Now, neither the swallowing nor the vomiting nor any of the period of time in between was pleasant for either Jonah or the fish. In fact, Thomas last week gave me a little drawing of a ship on the back of the bulletin because I'm glad that somebody was... This is how you take notes, isn't it, Thomas? <laughs> the picture of a ship and Jonah being hurled overboard and a whale swimming up or a fish swimming up to the boat and the little thought bubble come out of the fish and it says, Why me, Lord? <laughs> and I think that that's appropriate. We're in Jonah chapter 2, and what strikes us between Jonah chapter 1, or at least strikes me as odd, between Jonah 1 and Jonah 2, is the lack of details. Lack of details about what it was like inside the fish. Lack of details about... Uh, and the only detail, in fact, that we get is how long Jonah was in the fish. We end chapter 1, verse 17. It says that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. We have the swallowing of Jonah. Then no details given except three days, three nights. And then immediately into the prayer in chapter 2, verse 1. Because the emphasis of the whole narrative is not the fish. It's not that miracle. As miraculous as it is, and as literal as we take that, and as historical as it is, that's not the emphasis of the book of Jonah. The emphasis on the book of Jonah is what God is doing in Jonah's heart throughout the whole narrative. It's really not even, the emphasis is really not even on Nineveh. It's not on the Assyrians. It's not on the nation of Israel. It's not on the sailors. The whole thing is how God did a work in Jonah's heart. And we see that work come to at least the first stage of that work come to fruition in chapter 2 in Jonah's prayer. So since we're trans, transitioning from chapter 1 to chapter 2, this would be a good opportunity for me to remind you of that little outline I gave you at the beginning of the book of Jonah. I haven't mentioned it since we started chapter 1, since the introduction. In chapter 1 of the book of Jonah, we've titled that chapter, The Rebellious Prophet. We see there the scandalous rebellion of this prophet of God. 
and the hardness of his heart and how he ran away from the Lord, abandoned his prophetic ministry. It's Jonah at sea in chapter 1, the rebellious prophet. Then we get to chapter 2 and we see Jonah as the repentant prophet. And we see this repentance and this humility in Jonah in chapter 2. So today, and we want to dive right in, jump right in as it were, pun intended there too, into Jonah chapter 2 because we've got a lot of ground to cover. And I do want to cover the bulk of this prayer, almost the whole prayer. Actually, we're going to go through all of it, except for a couple of ideas that come up in verse 8 and verse 9. And we'll sort of focus in on verse 8 and 9 in more detail next week because verse 9 is the key theological truth in the book of Jonah. The end of it. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what Jonah learns in chapter 1 and 2. That's what Jonah has to relearn in chapter 3. And that's God's whole point in chapter 4. Salvation is of the Lord. So next week we'll look at verses 8 and 9 in more detail. Let me give you sort of three easy hangers, as it were, to hang your thoughts on this morning. We're going to look at Jonah's condition in his prayer. Because there are really three things that are emphasized in the prayer. His condition, we see in the prayer. Then we see Jonah's contrition. And then we see Jonah's confidence. And all three of those are sort of, sort of themes woven throughout the, the passage. Now I tried this whole last week to sit down because I like to, when I, when I outline a sermon or when I outline a passage of scripture, I like it to be really, really simple. Verse one and two is this. Verse three to five is this. Verse six to nine is this. And I was looking for some really simple, really easy, really cut and dry way of outlining this. But this whole prayer just really refused to be outline. It refused to submit to any kind of outline that I tried to put on it because I would sort of construct it and then I would read it and that doesn't work. And then I would kind of read the passage and say, well, this, but that doesn't work. And so I went over and over, round and around. And finally, I just thought, well, I'm just going to pull out these three things. And I want to show you how all three of these themes, his condition, his contrition and his confidence are sort of interwoven. Jonah sort of swims back and forth between one of these themes and another one of these themes as, as he goes through the prayer. Look at verse three. For you cast me into the deep, this is Jonah's condition, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said I have been expelled from your sight. But then his confidence, nevertheless I will look again toward your holy temple. Then back to his condition, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. Then you get down to verse 9 and there's that note of confidence. I will sacrifice to you and the vows that I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. So all of these ideas, the contrition and his condition and his confidence, all sort of woven throughout the whole prayer. Now, you'll notice that chapter 2 reads a lot like a psalm. Because it's Hebrew poetry. In fact, you'll notice chapter 1 is written as a story, just normal paragraph form. Then you get to chapter 2. It looks like something you would read in the psalms, doesn't it? Because it is Hebrew poetry. And one of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry is a lot of times Hebrew poetry will begin with a very general statement of that sort of encapsulates everything that is to follow. And that's what verse 2 is. Look at verse 2. I called out of my distress to the Lord and He answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Now, that's the central truth. I called out of God from my distress and from the pit of hell, this living hell that He was in, God heard me and God answered me. Now, verses 3 through 9, describe him crying out to God, God hearing him, and God answering him. So verse 2 sort of encapsulates it, summarizes it. Verses 3 through 9 really uh, expounds upon it and gives us sort of a fuller understanding of what he means in verse 2. 
One of the features, by the way, of Hebrew poetry, because you read through this, you're going to say, this doesn't look like poetry to me because it doesn't rhyme. Right? I, I always like to see poetry rhyme. I appreciate it when poetry rhymes. And when I start to read something that is supposed to be a poem and it doesn't rhyme, it frustrates me. I think this isn't, this is just a story and they sort of broke the sentences in the wrong place. It always made me mad in high school when you say, we're going to study poetry. I think, oh good, rhymes. You know, Shel Silverstein and some other good, good poets like that. So I think we're up against. And then we read something like, uh, oh, the escape, uh, Canterbury Tales. Is that right? Yeah, that's poetry, isn't it? Canterbury Tales? You're the economics professor, you tell me. <laughs> Something that didn't rhyme, and I'd always be frustrated by that. I think, that's not poetry, that's just writing. Well, Hebrew poetry is a rhyming poetry, but listen, it's not the words that rhyme. In Hebrew poetry, it's the ideas that rhyme. That doesn't make any sense to me. Look at verse 2 and you'll see what I'm talking about. I called out of my distress to the Lord. Beginning of Jonah's prayer. Look at the next phrase. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. I cried out of my distress to the Lord. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Those are rhyming ideas. And the next phrase rhymes too. From the distress, from my distress rhymes with the depth of Sheol. And the second half of the first half of the first verse, and he answered me, rhymes with, you heard my voice. So you see two very similar sentences that are sort of side by side and the ideas rhyme. That's what rhymes in Hebrew poetry. That's just for a little extra credit, no extra charge for that. Just so you know, watch for it in the Psalms, by the way. You'll see it all the way through the Psalms. The psalmist will say this, and then he'll rhyme that idea by stating it in another way. That's what Jonah does in verse 2. Now, Jonah says, I cried out of my distress, and he says, I cried to God for help from the depth of Sheol. The Sheol is the place of the dead. In the Old Testament theology, in the Old Testament way of expressing it, Sheol referred to the place where the dead go. The, the righteous, particularly not just the all dead, but particularly the unrighteous who would wait in Sheol for judgment from God. That was the Old Testament perspective. This is a reference to hell, the place of the dead. And verse 2 is why, and I told you this last week, some people say and they try to argue that Jonah died when he was swallowed by the whale and then was resurrected when he was spit back up on the dry land. Remember I mentioned that last week? Henry Morris believes that and argues for that. J. Vernon McGee is another one that believes that and argued for that. They use this phrase from the depth of Sheol to say Jonah was praying from the place of the dead. He died and he went to Sheol, the place of the dead, and from there he prayed and God answered his prayer. But Jonah doesn't mean literally the place of the dead. He's using it in a very metaphorical, figurative, uh, expressive way to describe the condition in which he was. Now think of it from the perspective, think of it from this perspective. To the sailors, Jonah was dead. The sailors pitched him overboard. They saw him sink down. That was the last they saw of it. They didn't see Jonah get swallowed. They didn't see the whale swim away. They didn't see Jonah get spit back up on dry land. To the sailors, from the sailors' perspective, Jonah was dead. As far as the rest of the world was concerned, Jonah was dead. When he sank beneath the waves, that was it. Goner. Done. Over. He's dead. From Jonah's perspective, in the belly of the fish, he is a goner. Unless the Lord delivers him, unless the Lord does something to get him out of the belly of that fish, from Jonah's perspective, he is dead. So Jonah describes his condition in the belly of the fish as being the pit of hell. The pit of Sheol. It is as if he is saying, I am existing in a state of living death in a living tomb. Horrible. That's his perspective on being in the belly of the fish. After I described it last week, 
You can see why Jonah would describe that as the pit of hell, can you not? Sure you would. It was not pleasant, it was not comfortable, it was not convenient. There was nothing good about being in there other than being rescued from death. And even then, I think there are times when I would say, you know, Lord, I would have rather died than get the fish, really. But he describes his condition being in the pit of the stomach from where he prays as being a living death. This is living death for me. And you think about it, he was surrounded by dead things. They were swimming all around him in the pit of that stomach. Dead fish, fish that were swallowed alive that would later die, fish that had been rotting maybe for several days. He was in a state of living death, and he describes it as the pit of Sheol. Then Jonah says, and he prays out of his affliction, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and He answered me. I cried to help from the depth of Sheol, and you heard my voice. Now, all through chapter 1, there's no reference to Jonah praying. I told you last week, it's not till the end of the three days and the three nights that Jonah finally prays. And when he finally does pray, what condition is he in when he prays? A state of living death, it's Sheol, it is affliction, and it is a state of distress. And it is that which Jonah prays from. Is it not true, and I can sympathize with Jonah a little bit, is it not true that you and I often wait until we are in affliction or in a state of distress before our prayer life really kicks in? Is that not true? When things, when we are fat, lazy, and happy, and things are going smoothly, things are going swimmingly for us, things are going great for us, we don't pray as we ought. We thank God for this and we ask for that, but it is when affliction comes and distress comes that it drives the child of God to prayer. Being in the stomach of a fish will do wonders for your prayer life. Wonders for your prayer life. Listen, watching a spouse die will do wonders for your prayer life. Watching a child die will do wonders for your prayer life. Suffering a disease or affliction or illness or an incurable condition will do wonders for your prayer life. Watching somebody, a child, walk away from the Lord does wonders for your prayer life, right? Because that is one of the blessings of affliction is that affliction is intended to turn our hearts to God so that we cry out to Him. That is one of the purposes of suffering and affliction. It casts us on the Lord. So we say, He is whom I will look to. I will turn my eyes to the Lord from whence comes my help. That's what affliction does. That's what it did for Jonah. In the pit of affliction, he starts to pray. I heard one saint one time say, you know what, until my wife was in a car accident and she almost died, they didn't expect her to live. He said, it was then that I understood true prayer. He said, then I prayed. All desire for food went away. And prayer was the only thing he wanted. And he cast himself on the Lord. And he said at the end of that, when she got better and she came out of that, I was displeased to see how my prayer life began to wane again. It wasn't as, in, as intense or as joyful or as fruitful as when my wife was on the verge of death. That's sad, but it's true, isn't it? So Jonah prays out of his affliction. You'll notice chapter 2, verse 2 sounds a lot like Old Testament Psalms. In fact, I want you to notice something. This whole prayer, chapter 2, verse 2 through 9, this whole prayer is composed of allusions and quotations to the Old Testament Psalms. Let me give you an example. There are no less than ten different Psalms that are either directly quoted or alluded to or whose language is borrowed by Jonah for this prayer. And yet the prayer reflects Jonah's condition, Jonah's situation, Jonah's heart. Look at chapter 2, verse Two, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and He answered me. Now I want you to listen to Psalm 120, verse 1. In my trouble I cried to the Lord and He answered me. See what Jonah's doing? He's quoting the Old Testament Psalms. 
Chapter uh, 2, verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Listen to Psalm 88, verses 6 and 7. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Or he could be quoting Psalm 42, verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves rolled over me. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Listen to Psalm 31, verse 22. As for me, I said in my alarm, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Let me give you a couple more examples. Look at verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help, and He heard my voice out of His temple. Look at verse 9. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. And he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. What is Jonah doing? Jonah is praying in the belly of the fish, but here's what he's doing. He is calling up to his mind all of the phrases of his worship, the phrases of his, of his adoration of God, and the phrases of Scripture from the book of Psalms. And that is what is on his lips. That is what Jonah is praying. Now listen. This is why knowing Scripture is so important for you and I as a child of God. Jonah was a man who was well-versed in the Scriptures. He knew the Psalms. The Psalms were his book of prayer and praise. All the Jews, when they gathered together, would sing the Psalms like modern-day hymns and choruses are for us. This was the language of his worship. And so all of those words and all of those allusions and all of those images were in Jonah's heart and on Jonah's mind. And then when affliction came, and he felt himself in the middle of his distress, in the pit of Sheol, when he cries out to the Lord, what is it that bubbles to the surface? What is it that comes off his lips? You know what it is? It's the Word of God. It's the words of his worship. It is the images of his salvation. It is everything that is in the Old Testament Psalms. That's why you read the Scripture. That's why you want to know the Scripture. That's why you want to get into the Scripture. Why? So that it is inside your heart, and then when affliction comes, and the pressure cooker presses in upon you, you will, what will bubble forth will not be anger, will not be bitterness, and will not be resentment, but it will be the very sentiments of God Himself in His Word. When Jonah was in affliction, what forged his response, what shaped his response to his affliction was the Word of God. It was the Word of God. And you cannot wait until affliction comes and says, oh, 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 now I'll open up my Bible and see if there's something for me in it. No, you want to get into your Bible beforehand. So that when afflictions come, when afflictions come, the very first thing that comes off your lips, the very first thing that shapes your response to it is the Word of God. The Spirit of God can use that affliction to shape your response to it. Jonah didn't light a candle in the stomach of the fish and then pull out of his scroll the book of Psalms and say, I wonder if there's something in here for me. I wonder if there's something in here that would apply to my situation. And they start feverishly looking through the Psalms for something that would apply. No, he knew what would apply. And what came to his mind, first of all, was the Psalms. Jonah was not a benighted prophet. He was not ignorant of the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew them well. He knew them well enough that he could recite, he could compose a whole prayer just out of allusions to Scripture from the top of his mind, and yet the prayer was very much his own, even though he borrowed the language of Scripture. 
So that brings us to the three things that I told you we were going to focus on this morning. And don't look at your watch in a panic because we'll get through all three of these this morning. First, Jonah's condition. Then second, his contrition. And then third, we're going to look at his confidence in God. First, Jonah's condition. Look at verse 3. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all your breakers and billows passed over me. For you, O Lord, had cast me into the deep. Now hold on a second. Who cast Jonah into the deep? Think. Who did it? Who did it? Somebody say it. You're going to be wrong no matter what you say, right? That's what you're afraid of. Who cast Jonah into the deep? The sailors did. But when Jonah prays, what does he say? You, O Lord, have cast me into the deep. Now, did Jonah not see who threw him overboard? Was he just ignorant? He knew full well it was the sailors. But what is Jonah confessing? God was behind this action. Yes, the sailors did it. But God did it. And Jonah recognizes that. Do you remember Joseph after he was sold into slavery by his brothers and all the years went by and his brothers came down into Egypt and he revealed himself to them and they were terrified thinking Joseph now in a position of power from the throne of Egypt was going to be able to exact his revenge for their wicked deeds. And they were terrified before Joseph. But what did Joseph say? The Lord sent me here. The Lord sent me here. Now his brothers might have been able to say, no, 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 Joseph. We sold you into slavery. And Joseph would have been able to say, you might have done the wicked deed, but God purposed that wicked deed. He willed that wicked deed to send me to Egypt to prepare a place for you. So who was behind the selling of Joseph into slavery into Egypt? His brothers or the Lord? Both. And God used those wicked instruments to accomplish His perfect will. Same thing with Jonah and the sailors in the sea. Who pitched Jonah overboard? The sailors did. Who was behind it? Who was the effective cause? Who was the one who willed that to happen? God did. And Jonah knew it. And he said, Thou, O Lord, hast cast me into the deep. This is Your hand. And Your waves and Your breakers and Your billows have overshadowed me. And he saw the waves and he saw the sea and he saw being thrown into the deep as God's just and right thing that God was behind it. God had caused it. God was the effective cause. And God gets all the glory for doing it. That is as wonderful of a statement of divine providence and sovereignty as you could hope to find in the book of Jonah. Thou did it, O Lord. By the way, when we speak of the sovereignty of God, we do not mean that God takes responsibility for men's wicked actions, but we mean that God is sovereign over those wicked actions and He providentially controls even wicked actions to accomplish His perfect and His holy will. And that's exactly what Jonah is affirming in chapter 2. You have cast me into the deep. And he says, And the current engulfed me and all your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. What is his condition? I have been expelled from your sight. Now, when I read that, I thought to myself, hold on a second. Isn't that exactly what Jonah wanted? Remember chapter 1, verse 3? What was it? Twice, chapter 1, verse 3 says, he was fleeing to Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. What did Jonah think that he wanted more than anything else? To be away from God's presence. I want away from my people, my land, the temple, my God, my calling, my prophetic office, all of it. I want away from His sight. I want to be out of God's sight. That's what Jonah wanted. So he started down a path pursuing what he thought he wanted. He thought it would be better to be without God in Tarshish, to be away from God's sight in Tarshish, than it would to be in God's presence in Nineveh. 
But then in chapter 2, verse 3, he realizes, hey, I'm starting to get exactly what I want. I've been cast overboard. Thou, O Lord, hath done it. The waves have come over top of my head. I'm sinking down here. I've been expelled from your sight. And it horrifies him when he finally gets to realize a little bit of the reality of what he thought he wanted. Friends, you and I in our sinful hearts, we oftentimes ask God and desire things from God and about God that if He gave it to us, we would immediately shudder and say, the horror of it. I'm so thankful that God doesn't give me everything I want. Because my wicked and my sinful heart wants things that if they actually realized them, I would be horrified by the misery and by the horror of it. Jonah thought he wanted away from the presence of the Lord. But when that reality begins to crystallize, it horrifies him. As he realizes, I've been cast from God's sight. This is not as joyful as I thought it would be when I was in Joppa. I expected better from this when I got out of God's sight. But he didn't get it. Then in verse 4, sorry, verse 5, he returns again to his condition. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. What is he describing? He's describing the sinking. Right? In the water, the sinking. The waters encompassed me to the point of death. Jonah was on the cusp of death. The waters were over my head. The weeds were wrapped around my head. He's not describing being in the fish. He's describing sinking in the water. Probably that storm, and not probably not all that far from land. Far enough away from land that it was probably out of sight, but not so far away from land that there wouldn't have been weeds in the midst of all of that storm and the churning waters that would have churned up mats of seaweed and all types of vegetation in a storm like that. Probably floating out there and probably sort of hovering in the water. And when Jonah went overboard and he started to sink, what was wrapped around his head? Seaweed. And then as he goes down, it gets darker and darker and the pressure gets more and more and he is constrained by all these weeds that are wrapped around him. Those of you who are claustrophobic are just loving this right now, aren't you? And the weeds are wrapped around his head, he says in verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountains. A phrase that literally means I descended to the place where the mountains are founded. Down below the surface of the waters, I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. He feels like a prisoner. He's closed in. He realizes I'm being shut up. This is it. It's over. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord. While I was fainting away, and the word literally means to begin to sort of drift off or lose consciousness. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to me. So as Jonah is going down and his oxygen is running out and his life is ebbing away and it's getting darker and more and more conflicting and as the, the, the little lights in your eyes begin to twinkle, you know, when you realize your oxygen has been cut off, as he is fainting away, his last thoughts are of God. Verse 7, Then I remember the Lord. And he thinks to God and he utters a prayer. And listen, I believe it's at the end of verse 7 that Jonah is gulped. Swallowed. You, O Lord, have brought up my life from the pit. While I was fainting away, as I was losing consciousness, my last thoughts were of God. And he cries out for help. As he's sinking, as it is over, and help is there. And that's when Jonah is swallowed. Now, that's his condition. I want you to notice his contrition. And, and we can kind of see his contrition just from how Jonah describes all of his circumstances. As he describes everything that happened to him, what the sailors did, God throwing him overboard. Well, the sailors throwing him overboard, but obviously it was God that did that. As Jonah describes all of that, you don't read one word of complaint, do you? You don't read a man shaking his fist at God and saying, 
How dare you do this? This just wasn't right. Oh, poor me. None of that. Jonah doesn't for a minute think that he's been hard done by. Jonah doesn't for a minute think that God has been unjust in his dealings. Jonah understands he has gotten exactly what he has deserved. Jonah understands that she should get the death sentence for disobeying the Lord and jumping on board that boat. He should get the death sentence for how hard his heart has been, for how rebellious he has been. And yet his contrition through the whole prayer is he doesn't question God, he doesn't complain to God whatsoever. He says in verse 6, You brought me up from the pit. I went down and I was on a downward descent and you rescued me. That is words of contrition. Look at verse 9. I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. All that I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is of the Lord. That's humility and contrition. This is a contrite heart. This is a repentant heart. And contrition goes with repentance. It is that humility that says, you are the Lord and you have done this and I have gotten not even what I deserve. I've received more grace than I deserve. You have brought my life up from the pit and He is humbled. He is repentant. He is contrite. He is not complaining. He's not arguing with God whatsoever. That's contrition. That is contrition. That is exactly what you look for in the heart of somebody who is repenting of their sin. Contrition. Not just, oh, yeah, you caught me. I was wrong. Wrong. That's not what you expect from somebody who is contrite and repentant. You expect somebody to be broken and to have a broken heart and to say, you're right, the Lord is the Lord and I am His servant and this is the relationship that exists and God has been good to me and I have been rebellious and here is what has happened to me. Here's why I deserve it. I offer no complaint. I offer no uh, cries of injustice whatsoever. That is contrition. And you know what's missing from this prayer? And that's, this, I think, is another evidence of contrition. There's something missing. I ask you this all the time, don't I? You see what's missing there? And if you're thinking like I do, you think, well, of course there's something missing there, Jim. What do you, what do you mean? I don't read about leprechauns or unicorns or anything else. There's a thousand things missing from the text. What do you mean? It's kind of a stupid question, isn't it? But do you notice what's missing from the text? There is something missing that we would expect to be in a prayer like this. There's not one request. Not one petition. In the whole prayer. Now that I find odd because I know that if it were me, what I would be saying. Because I have been in distressful situations and circumstances, not nearly like this, and I have begged God for deliverance. Oh God, please get me out of this. Oh God, please alleviate my suffering. Nothing compared to this. And yet Jonah doesn't offer one request to the Lord. I would have been crying out to the Lord, deliver me from this living hell. This rotting, foul, seaweed-infested fish. Get me out of here. And Lord, here are all the ways that I think You could do it. You could cause this fish to be harpooned. You could cause this fish to be uh, caught by a, a fishing boat. You could cause the fish to vomit me up somewhere near the land. Lord, maybe preferably on land. Because that's what we do. We pray for something and we give God all these great ideas of how He could alleviate our circumstances in ways as if He's sitting in heaven saying, Oh, I never thought of that. That's what you and I would do. But not one request from Jonah. Not one prayer for deliverance from the fish. Why is that? I think there's possibly two things going on here. First is this. I think that likely in Jonah's mind, he had already experienced his deliverance. And what was it from? The deliverance of the heart. See, Jonah had been brought to a point where he had been set free from his rebellion. He has repented. And God has done a work in his heart. And for that, he is thankful. Now, all of his circumstances, whatever they may be, pit of the stomach, whatever it is, all of that is just ancillary. That's just, those are just details. 
For Jonah, his true deliverance has already been experienced, and that is the deliverance of the heart. He has repented. He has turned. God has set him free from the rebellion. Now he will sacrifice. He will offer vows. Salvation is of the Lord. He understands that now. He's been delivered from his own sinful, wicked, rebellious heart. And for him, that's enough. But I think there might be something else going on here. I think it's a combination of both of these things. Not only has Jonah already experienced his true deliverance, but Jonah, I think, knows that having been rescued from death, from sinking, and having been swallowed by a whale or a fish, and now having been preserved three days and three nights, Jonah knows that God is not done with him. And God has delivered him from death, delivered him while in the fish, and delivered him from his own sinful rebellion. And I think Jonah knows it's only a matter of time before my deliverance from the belly of this fish comes to fruition. And whatever God is going to do, God is going to do. So he doesn't even bother requesting, at least from what we have here, no requests or petitions for deliverance from the fish. That's Jonah's contrition. When you are contrite, when you are repentant, when God doesn't work in your heart, you're not begging God for alleviation from circumstances. Not at all. All you want to do is know my relationship with the Lord has been restored. And that is enough. And if that's all I have, then that is good enough. So we look at Jonah's condition, his contrition. Now look at his confidence. And it's expressed in two words. Verse 4, Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Verse 7, while I was fainting all the way, I remember the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. I want you to take note for a second. Two mentions of the temple. And verse 9, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is of the Lord. All the way through the prayer, no matter, in spite of his circumstances, no matter what else might be going on, there's a note of hope through the whole prayer. And here is his hope. I will look again toward your holy temple. You heard me from the temple. Now I ask you this question. Why in the belly of a fish does Jonah mention the temple twice? Why the references to the temple? It's not incidental. I believe it's intentional. And I believe there's a reason for it. Can you think of what it might be? What happened at the temple? Sacrifices were offered at the temple. Sacrifices for what? Sin. Do you see verse 9? I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Jonah knows that having been delivered from his rebellion, having been delivered from death, and now having been preserved in the belly of this fish, that he will be delivered from the fish. And Jonah's confidence is, I will another time, I will look again on your holy temple. I will show up there with my animal to sacrifice to you. And I will pay that which I have vowed. In Jonah's mind, there was one thing that had stood between him and his God, and it was sin. And now Jonah references the temple because at the temple, sin is dealt with. Sin is atoned for. Animals were killed. Innocent blood was shed to cover sin and to propitiate for the sinner. And so as Jonah reflects upon his sin, he reflects upon the hope that he has. He knows one of these days I'm going to stand again in the temple of God and I will sacrifice to the Lord. He mentions sacrifices and he mentions vows in verse 9. I will sacrifice to the Lord. And I think there he's talking about animal sacrifices. Obviously, he couldn't do it in the belly of the fish. He's talking there about animal sacrifices at the temple. And I will pay that which I have vowed. What had Jonah vowed? Well, Jonah in this verse vows, of course, that he's going to sacrifice to the Lord. It could be that Jonah is just simply reiterating that and saying, I will pay that which I have vowed, the sacrifice that I've promised to offer. I think there might be something a little bit deeper here with the vows that he's referencing. Look at the, Remember the context of the whole book of Jonah. 
What had he abandoned in chapter 1, verse 3? Prophetic office. Away from the presence of the Lord, right? I'm done serving you. You called me. I answered the call. You commissioned me. I told you I would obey. I told you I would do what you had called me to do. I pledged my obedience to you. And then he fled from the presence of the Lord and simply said, I'm done with it. The vow is over. It's canceled. And God said, no, it's not. Brought him back right down in the belly of the fish to where Jonah could say, I will pay that which I have vowed. What does that involve? Obedience. I will obey you. That is what I vowed to do as a prophet. That is what I will do when I get out of the belly of this fish. I will obey you. And that meant going to Nineveh. This is Jonah saying, Lord, what I promised that I would do, I will do it. And that's another evidence of his contrition, by the way. It's obedience. It's pledged to obedience. He doesn't vow to get, he doesn't vow to be obedient in hopes that God will deliver him. He's just simply saying, look, I, here I am in the belly of this fish. You are the one who is the author of all salvation and I will pray to you. I will sacrifice to you. I will pay that which you have asked me. I will pay that which you have vowed. Lord, I will obey you. I don't think for a second that this is Jonah getting saved for the first time because it's not. The faith that Jonah has in the belly of the fish is a faith that is able to look outside of his circumstances and say, God is bigger than this. God is doing something. God has a purpose in this. And I will endure this. And I will trust in the Lord. It is a faith that is willing to say, even though I'm right now in the stomach of a fish, I believe that I will again look on God's holy temple. I will sacrifice to Him. I will pay what I have vowed. That is a supernatural saving faith. That is an amazing faith. That is, eyes able to look beyond the immediate circumstances and, and declare its trust in God. But this is not Jonah getting saved. This is not Jonah saying, oh, I've been a prophet of God and I was rebellious, but now I'm getting saved for the first time. No, Jonah had been a prophet of God, used by God, a righteous man, a man of God, a respected man, even in his own community back then. He's not getting saved right now. What he is getting is recommissioned. See, this is the story of a child of God who knows their Bible well, who understands the will of God well, and embarks down a path of disobedience until God says, no more, that far, no more. You're mine. Come back. Forces them back. They repent. They are humbled. And they are restored. This is the story of a gracious God who is now restoring Jonah back to ministry. Restoring Jonah back to his commission. That's why in verse 10, it says, the Lord commanded the fish, and the fish vomited up Jonah. Because now Jonah is ready to start again at square one. But we'll have to save the beautiful story of the vomiting of the fish for another day. Because we're out of time. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank You that in Your grace and in Your goodness, that You overlook our sin, that You forgive our sin. Thank You that there is always restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation possible with You. We thank You, God, that in Your grace, You never give up on those who are Yours. You never allow us to wander too far from You. We pray, O God, that You would seal this truth to our hearts. Help us to understand just how good and gracious and loving You are. That You are at work in our hearts and in our lives. We thank You for what we can learn from Jonah. We pray now, God, that Your grace and that Your peace and that Your love would go with each one of us this day and through this week. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.